0: Software Engineering Radio, episode 130, Code Visualization with Michele
1: Lanza. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for support. Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of Software Engineering Radio. This is another episode we are recording here at Chao 2008, same procedure as every year. Um, Today, we are talking about software visualizations and you have to think about this like an audio book, right? The fact that you can't see things in the podcast helps you because you can imagine things to be, you know, really great. Um, to uh, do this discussion today, we have a guest, Michele Lanza. Hello. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners so they know who they're listening to?
0: Okay, so my name is Michele Lanza. I'm Italian. I'm assistant professor currently at the University of Lugano. That's in southern Switzerland. And before that, I did a PhD in Bern, that's in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. Interesting to know, I'm Italian. Really important.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't have uh, guessed. I mean, you speak absolutely perfect German, so... Uh, oh, yeah, thanks.
0: But <coughs> I've been like 25 years in Switzerland. Uh-huh, okay. Well, not everybody's perfect.
1: <laughs> I don't know what that means in this context, but... Uh <laughs> okay, so um, we want to talk about software visualization today, um, and... Before we get into the details also of the tools you built, why don't you give us an outline of what software visualization is and why it is important?
0: Okay, so (coughs) software visualization is basically the depiction of software constructs and the main purpose is to understand software. Mm -hmm. So think of this as in every software system basically you have entities and relationships so for example you have classes, methods, attributes, that's the entities Mm -hmm. and you have relationships like inheritance, invocation attribute access and so on. So lots of visualization tools are based on a graph notion where Mm -hmm. basically the entities are nodes in the graph and the relationships are the edges in the graph and you basically depict a software system, you take any software system and you can depict it As a graph, basically. Mm
1: -hmm. And um, we'll talk about later about the information you can gain from looking at it. But um, I think it's important to at least briefly talk about the difference between software visualization and uh, the classical modeling. People might think about UML kinds of things once they hear about visualization. Is that what you're talking about or is it different? And if so, how?
0: Well, (coughs) an important thing to say is that Visualization is not UML, okay? UML is a visual language mm-hmm. to describe the design of a system. And the good thing, because UML bashing is very easy, the good <laughs> thing <Yeah>. about UML <laughs> is that it is a universal language. You can give a UML diagram to a developer in Brazil or in Japan, and that person will understand it nonetheless, mm-hmm. okay? Now, visualization works at a different level. There, the point is to depict software in a way which communicates me thinks about the system. Plus, UML does not really scale up. If you d- have a class diagram of a system of 1,000 classes, yeah. you will not really understand anything, because it's just too much information. Good visualizations are basically abstracting away all the complexity into simple pictures yeah. that allow for interpreting the pictures.
1: So, so is it fair to say that if you want to visualize something, you should first think about what you want to communicate and yeah. then think about two things. One is um, the suitable abstractions of things that, well, what needs to be shown in the diagram, what's the abstraction, what's the level of detail maybe? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is how to graphically render it so it's easily accessible to the viewer.
0: Yeah. So (coughs) basically, I started doing all this around 10 years ago when I was a master student at the University of Bern. And we had this project together with a couple of uh, European companies, one of which was this Northern Telecommunications Company. So they had very large systems that they needed to understand. So one day, they basically invited us to go there and tell them something about the system. Because it was so complex that they had kind of lost track about it. Mm So the point there is that you cannot go there and use some massive tools to do all that because you don't just don't have the time. So you just start with very simple approaches. Mm-hmm. So the one I kind of invented, although I don't think that there's any invention there, <laughs> was basically to provide this graph-based notion of visualization I talked before, but enrich it with information about the entities and mm-hmm. the relationships. So this led to the concept of a polymetric view which is basically a um, a graph visualization enriched with software metrics so just free your mind the rest will follow imagine <laughs> this you basically have a square representing an entity and now you use metrics on top of that representing the width the height of the square and also the color of the mm-hmm. square yeah. and if you do that you get this enriched visualization that can tell you actually things about the system. So instantly you will see the large things, you will see the small things, you will see the dark things. Yeah. And that's the whole point. It's a, it's a very simple idea, but actually it works.
1: You talked about, um, well, if I say you talked about, then I should maybe add that uh, I've just seen your talk at Jau. So in your talk, uh, you talked about um, a couple of primitive graphical elements or cr- relationships between things that stand out and that make us easily comprehend something. Can you elaborate uh, on those a little bit? Because, I mean, those are the basis for visualization then.
0: So basically, <coughs> I, let's put it like this. I read a couple of books on how the brain works. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of wonderful books. So just book pointers, one called Stephen Few, uh, Show Me the Numbers, and the other one by Steven Pinker, which is called How the Mind Works. Mm-hmm. So there, basically they, and not they, I mean researchers assessed that we see with our brain at three different levels so we have this iconic memory we have short-term memory of long-term memory now long-term memory that's not that's not the topic this is really remembering yeah iconic memory works like a buffer you see something and iconic memory retains what you see for less than one second before it passes it on to short-term memory mm-hmm. Short-term memory is the one which has limited capacity now iconic memory works based on a couple of fundamental principles and there's not that many. So these are called pre-attentive attributes. Mm-hmm. So for example if you have two lines and one is longer to see that the one line is longer will not require you to consciously process that your iconic memory will do that automatically for you. So The number of pre-attentive attributes is limited, so for example you have the line length, the line width, the size of something, Mm -hmm. the color of something, and so on. And those primitives are actually the ones that you can use for depicting anything, including software.
1: So that would mean that if you talk about metrics in your polymetric views, that you take a certain characteristic of an entity... For example, it's, it's you know, lines of code in the method or the number of methods in a class. And then you assign that to the degree of length, color, width. And then this allows the iconic memory to find, to easily spot the outliers, basically. Exactly. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. So that's also, I guess, the, the whole idea of visualization to easily spot things that are kind of strange.
0: Yeah. And the major point there is that to do that without reading the code so you just look at the system and no source code is displayed right although to be honest at one moment in time you must start reading the code because it, software is not about pictures it's about source code yeah but before you actually go down to the level of source code you can spend a lot of time saving time at the, at the level above where you just look at the large system with these constructs
1: mhm um so okay so based on that you have built a couple of tools yeah um, so why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to the kinds of tools you built the 2D ones the 3D ones and and then we can talk about how what, what they're useful for and how they can be used
0: i started basically building tools with a tool called cocrawler it was a very simple tool which implemented the concept of polymetric views mm-hmm. and with that you could actually reverse engineer and understand large scale systems and that's what i did actually f- during the course of my PhD. Then CoCrawler actually got extended into visualizing the internal structure of classes using class blueprints. I also extended it to visualize the evolution of systems with again very simple concepts, one of which is called the evolution matrix. This basically was my whole PhD. Then when I founded basically my research group at the University of Lugano we started building a massive range of tools. Mm-hmm. So we started with 2D reverse architecting tool, where basically you look at the system from above. This is the work of Mirchalungu, and you can basically tear the system apart in terms of its packages and get a, get an understanding of its architecture. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there was another PhD student called Marco Dambros. He started by extending CoCrawler to visualize bug information Mm -hmm. so you could actually see which entities in the system were affected by which and how many bugs and then you could actually reason about that. At one moment, basically, we also started doing uh, Java tools because so far, all the tools I've mentioned actually have been written in Smalltalk.
1: And also for Smalltalk programs, I guess.
0: No, actually, they worked also um, for non-Smalltalk programs Mm -hmm. like C++ or Java because we had this language-independent meta-model right. that okay. we can use. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we started to write Java tools, basically Eclipse plugins, mm-hmm. and although some of them are actually fairly successful, like one called X-Ray, written by a student called Jacopo Malnati, which are, these tools, by the way, are all free and open. Right <laughs> should yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put mm. the links to them into mm-hmm. the show notes. Okay. We started recognizing that There was no use in trying to compete for the real estate on the screen of an IDE like Eclipse. Mm -hmm. Because programmers, when they program, what they want to see most of all is actually the code itself. That's why they blow up basically the the code pane, the text editor pane, and minimize all the rest. So a visualization tool doesn't have a great chance there. So we basically tried then to go the completely opposite way by trying to create an immersive experience. Uh So we started writing a tool, and this is the work of a PhD student called Richard Dettel, where we visualize software systems as three-dimensional cities Uh into which you can immerse yourself. So we used the metaphor of a city, we played around with a lot of metaphors, but in the end we settled on the metaphor of a city because of two reasons. First one is that cities are a known concept. Yeah. People live in cities or have been to cities, hopefully, <laughs> so they know what it's, what it's all about. Yeah. Second, I don't think that software visualization is about oversimplifying the complexity of software systems. Mm-hmm. So a metaphor like a city r- works really well because a city is a complex construct that needs to be explored progressively. And we will actually want to imply the same on software systems. Right. That you need to slowly immerse yourself into that and start to get a feeling of what the system is all about. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so that means if I try to describe this a little bit for our listeners, and and we add, again, I also encourage you guys to to actually visit the show notes and and look at the slides because there are really nice visualizations in the slides which we probably cannot do justice through the audio communication here. But if if he talks about um, um, code cities, then this really means that you literally have building like structures with a certain width and a certain height and maybe a certain color, where height, width, and color as you mentioned before represent some of those metrics yeah. and and you really get like certain you talked about parking lots skyscrapers antennas right things that are flat and big that are massive or that are high and tall so it's really really very useful
0: yeah the other thing is also apart from looking at the slides these are basically pictures. You should really download the tools, yeah. Because the point is that in such cities you can really walk around. You can touch things. You can modify things. You can tag them, for example. You can you can colorize them and so on. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the point. I don't think software visualization is about creating nice pictures about sure. the system, <laughs> because these pictures will won't tell you enough. It's really about this navigation experience yeah. that you can immerse yourself into those visualizations. Yeah.
1: So. Based on, on on those renderings, um, people might ask themselves, so what do I do with those? What's the point? What kind of applications can we have or what can we actually achieve with those city diagrams or city maps or whatever? And uh, I guess there are three uh, applications that you talked about and why don't we uh, look at each of them briefly. So the first one is uh, program comprehension.
0: Yeah, basically the, the point there is that <coughs> you have a large system in front of you that you don't know about and you must get some kind of bearing of the system, you must understand what the system is all about. Now what you can do in such a co- in such a case is either you can start reading the code but this is not really realistic because if the system is really large you will spend a lot of time and this doesn't necessarily imply that you will actually understand the system. Right. So f- for this we use these city-like visualizations to give an instantaneous feeling for how the system looks like and that's also actually that something that i I can hardly talk about just orally but if you visualize different systems you will start to recognize that they are really diverse in nature so some systems have more uh, a a good distribution of functionality so there are no skyscrapers okay so all the classes have reduced amounts of functionality, the system is really well structured, while in other systems you have these monster classes where everything is concentrated, and you instantly actually see that. Plus, another thing that we have also seen is that there is something going on with languages. So, we visualize systems in Java, Smalltalk, and C++, and you actually see that there's different typologies of cities depending on the language. Mm-hmm. But this is leading to a completely different topic that not the subject here?
1: Well, but at least it it it, it suggests different cultures of how the OO paradigm is understood. Right? Oh yes, absolutely. So that's, I guess, the, the message there.
0: Plus, I guess that uh, the language like C plus plus can hardly be called object oriented, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, w- uh, why did I know that you would say this as a small talk guy? <laughs> 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 Now if I, if I imagine that you have uh, those snapshots of the system displayed as a city, then of course the next question is, can you have movies? Um, in the sense that you show the evolution of a system over time.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's one of the more obvious things that you actually do. So we actually did that on a couple of systems where we basically took snapshots of the system, like a good number, okay? And then for each of the snapshots you create one three-dimensional depiction, then you can concatenate all those pictures and create the movie of the evolution of a system and we did this with a couple of systems and the good thing there is that while of course a movie does not allow you to interact with the system the whole movie gives you actually a story about the system you clearly see how the system has evolved over time when there have been major restructurings in the systems plus of course you can always add additional information on top of that So, for example, you could use colors to denote who actually wrote which parts of the system. Or when. Or when. And then you could actually really see who is responsible for which changes in the system.
1: And, and I mean, again, it's, it's, it's hard to do it audio only, but if you look at the slides, you will really be... I mean, yeah, you said it's not about pretty pictures, but it really helps you to get an overview, and I guess that's the point. This Before we look at the third application, I really want to reiterate this thing that I think... Well, that's my, my personal opinion. My background here is that I work a lot with models, and over time I've really come to the conclusion that graphical modeling in many cases doesn't really work. Uh, so I really like to do graphical DSLs for modeling and then use visualization to give you the overview and then maybe a drill down capacity so you can double click a bubble and you back to the text So, so what's your opinion there i mean do you think graphical interactive graphical construction of systems graphical programming is is that a dead end
0: it is a dead end in the way that it was performed in the last 20 years so some people have done amazing visual programming languages but i think what they got wrong but that's my personal opinion okay, of course that's why i'm asking is you. that <laughs> <laughs> is that they tried also to use the visual programming language at this at the sub method level mm-hmm. so actually you were writing for example imagine that you have to write a, a bubble sort algorithm so you would actually compose the bubble sort algorithm graphically yeah and i think that this just doesn't work because in this case the description of what you want to do is more complex than the things that you're actually describing. Yeah. And this doesn't make sense. So I think that below method body or below below f- functional units in the system, you must actually write source code. But above it, visu- visualization there makes a lot of sense and also visual programming.
1: Yeah. So, so the way I like to distinguish things is as soon as you have the rel- entities and their relationships or a kind of signal flow or a timeline that advances and you want to show events on the timeline, there a graphical description is really useful because it it, it really gives you the essential information, which is temporal relationship or the relationship between entities. But as soon as you don't have one of these criteria, you're screwed graphically.
0: Yes, absolutely. Visualization is about breaking down complexity. That's that's the whole point. If if a visualization does not succeed in doing that, then
1: it's useless. Right. Application number three is, um, if I paraphrase it, uh, smell detection. Right. Yes. So what you do is you basically implement certain metrics that detect smells and then highlight those.
0: Yeah, so two years ago I wrote a book together with uh, Radu Marinescu from Technical University of Timisoara, where the book basically is a, is a merge of two PhDs. My PhD, which, which was in visualization, mm-hmm. and Radu's PhD, which was in metrics. Mm-hmm. So Radu during his PhD developed this concept called detection strategy. A detection strategy is, in, is a formalized design heuristic. So imagine that you have a a design heuristic like a god class. Okay, a god class is a problem. You go and read
1: what is a god class? Just to be
0: a god class basically is a class w- that tends to centralize intelligence of the system. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it starts to misuse the classes around it as mere data holders while it tries to do everything itself mm-hmm. and What I've seen also by observing the evolution of God classes is that these things have this cancer-like connotation (laughs) where over time they they start to suck in functionality out of the other classes. So a God class can be seen like this. If you are a programmer and you don't really know where to place information in a system, then you go and place it in God class. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they have this enormous growth. Now, detection strategies are metrics-based conditions to detect fragments of the system that exhibit design problems. Mm -hmm. So we have for example defined a detection strategy to detect God classes based on metrics and what you do there is if you run such a detection strategy it's like a filter it will take the 2000 classes in your system and it will spit out the 50 classes in the system that have this particular design problem. Mm Now. One problem there is always to inspect the results. Because if you get back a list of 50 classes, well, what would you do? You would start to go through one class after the other. So what we did there is by uh, taking inspiration from uh, disease maps and also from CAT (laughs) scans, Okay, where you have, for example, you have a CAT scan of a brain, the inactive parts are grayed out, and the parts that are active have very live colors. So we do the same. We represent the systems as 3d cities all grayed out and where there is a design problem we just use live colors Mm -hmm. and this actually gives you an instantaneous feeling for which parts of the system you should look at because these parts exhibit design problems
1: yeah so in some sense it's a as you say a visualization of metrics and and making the result of a well metric detection thing yeah yeah yeah. to a certain
0: extent this goes and that's also where one of my research tracks will lead into the future it goes towards augmented reality so mm-hmm. you have this you have this fully immersive experience around you but computer graphics allows you to actually augment it yep. by add additional information on top of that you can imagine it a little bit as uh, walking through a city and then there is this pointer in your field of view that display. tells you that there is a good <laughs> restaurant
1: yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah have you thought about integrating your system or advertising your visualizations towards those typical you know software tomography or clockwork whatever they're called those static analysis tools because they also have all those metrics in them but they don't really display them in a very very accessible way have you thought about integrating those or making them use your approach or whatever
0: well, let's put it like this. At least a couple of those that you mentioned actually took heavy inspiration from our work. Okay. That's for sure, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the other thing is... <coughs> well, <coughs> the problem there is that visualizations do not really work just as pictures, uh, as I said before. Yeah. So you need to actually use the tools. Right. And this a very usage good point. of the tool is, is not... Uh,
1: let, let, let me try, because I think I know what you're saying, and that is you should use the ability of the tool to interact with the model or the picture as opposed to r- having this paper metaphor where you just display something.
0: Exactly. If, if you look at certain tools that actually do code quality analysis, what you do there is basically you press a button and it generates your report right. about the problems in the system. Right. And then the manager is happy. Because you can (laughs) give the report to some guy and that guy will go and fix it up, hopefully. Now, with visualization, this doesn't really work. You must really dive into the system. And this interactive notion to some people looks not, I guess, not scientific enough or not empirical enough or not stable enough.
1: Yeah. But it's really interesting because all the current, again, going back to UML, um, all the current UML tools still have this paper metaphor. A diagram is a passive thing that sits on the screen. You can print it one-to-one. There is no, for example, what I would like to have as kind of a minimum is I have a class in UML and then it has a bunch of associations, but they kind of end in infinity and then you double-click the associations and the classes that are at the other end of the association like pop up and come into the center. An interactive, you know, Exploration of the diagram. So I think this disease of having diagrams as something that can be printed with this paper metaphor is a big problem, and and that's what you basically just talked about, right? Yeah. So um, all the stuff we talked about until now was basically uh, the description or the visualization, I should say, of structure. Uh, Can you also visualize behavior, and what would that mean?
0: So we have done some work in visualizing the dynamic behavior runtime behavior of systems one of the problems there is the data you have basically a complete data overkill so Mm -hmm. if you trace a system even if only for a couple of seconds you end up having tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of events and while of course these events are all relevant because otherwise the system wouldn't work (laughs) a lot of them is actually noise. because in the end what you really want to do is to understand how the system is behaving while it is running and or if there is a problem in the behavior. So in this context we have done basically um, two kinds of works. The first one is to try to visualize in 3D again objects and message sends as they happen. Mm -hmm. This worked actually but led to a lot of overplotting problems. The other one is to take the static structure of the system in 3d and superimpose on top of that the dynamic Mm behavior this kind of works but it's ongoing research Mm
1: -hmm. it's not clear yet whether it's going to be extremely useful or not No. okay
0: and again i mean when it comes to research what i should mention is that what researchers usually present is like a one out of ten thing Mm -hmm. So they try ten different things and nine out of ten don't work Mm -hmm. and then one works yeah so while sometimes it may look really simplistic there's a lot of work behind it right and a lot of in in a certain way unnecessary work
1: (laughs) yeah if you only knew before (laughs) yeah um last question so i guess you're generally involved in the visualization community oh yeah and um that is a different community from the modeling community Um, I personally think that the modeling community could learn a lot from the visualization community because, again, models are just data and comprehending those data is a big challenge in bigger models. So is there any um, attempt at kind of, you know, having those two communities work together? Are there any venues? How, you know, is there a workshop that says, I don't know, uh, using visualization techniques for mm, just... You know, UML models. I don't think UML is very useful, but you know, you get the point. Is there any such thing, or do you think it's worth trying to have something like that?
0: Well, the sad news is that there is nothing. Okay, mm-hmm. so I can also, on a side note, I can say that visualization, software visualization, doesn't doesn't have an easy life, at least in academia, because mm-hmm. if you if you go to many software engineering conferences, what these people want was is empirical results on mm-hmm. things. So you have to prove to them that whatever you do is better than something that somebody else has done before. And in the case of visualization, this is not so easy. Because how can you evaluate whether visualization really works or not? So one way would be to use, for example, human guinea pigs, right? Mm -hmm. So you take a couple of people, some of them, you give them the visualization tool, and the others not. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is that you can always tweak the questions in a way to make your your tool look good. Yeah. Okay? Yep. And I don't think that this is scientifically honest. Yeah. Then the other thing is also that for me, it's funny to observe during the last 10 years that whenever I show visualizations, the academic part of computer science is not convinced while the developer community mm-hmm. actually loves it. Mm-hmm. So, there is some deeper truth behind that, but I still have to discover that right now, with respect to the the question, is it worth to look at modeling in the context of visualization and vice versa? yeah I definitely think so, but if you look at conferences like models, that's like the conference on modeling, right, yeah there's nothing on visualization mm-hmm. it's it's really really hard
1: so i guess um there is something we need to do next year either at models or at oopsler or something and try to actually g- or maybe even at EclipseCon. there's a couple of visualization projects on eclipse maybe to 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 try to submit a workshop and get this going because again i, I work a lot with textual languages and i need visualization and all the quick yeah. hacks i built aren't really good so i think that would be really interesting
0: well one one thing i can say is that w- if any of the listener is intending to visualize something, maybe based on the inspirations gotten from looking at the slides, yeah. is that whatever you do, never ever forget that visualization works based on a couple of very simple principles, the one that we talked before, mm-hmm. the pre-attentive attributes. Yeah. So any visualization must take that into account. So it's not about generating beautiful stuff, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about generating meaningful things that can actually help you.
1: Right. Is there anything else you want to say, want to leave with our listeners before we uh, shut this episode down? Well, <coughs> one thing I have to say is that although conceptually a lot of this
0: comes out of my brain, I should also mention that uh, I wouldn't be anything without my PhD students. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I should mention them again. That's Roman Rob, Mircea Lungu, Marco D'Ambros, Ricky Vettel and Lille Hattori. Okay. These guys it? right now are my my vehicle workforce to express whatever I think Uh although they are much better than I am
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay Michele thank you very much for being on the show thanks thanks for downloading and listening to Software Engineering Radio Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe if you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes visit our website at se-radio.net If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example by clicking on the dick, reddit, delicious and buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio as well as all other episodes are licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.